would you open your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5. Paul's opponents have been convincing the church in Galatia, the churches there, that the true mark or the true basis for how a person becomes a believer is by their performance. But he has proven in the first four chapters that the Old Testament clearly showed that a person doesn't come to saving faith or doesn't come to be accepted by God because of their performance, but rather by faith. That is, by hearing with faith. But he's gone on to say, and we've talked about this at length, that that, that doesn't mean that doesn't matter how we live. That a true Christian will have evidences or marks that they are Christians. That they are uh they are accepted by God. They are following God. And, and the marks that he's going to show us today in Galatians chapter 5 are that true Christians are led by the Spirit. They are led by the Holy Spirit. In verse 18 of this passage that we'll look at today, he says that if we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. And the point is is that that when we are led by the Spirit, who is it that resides in us as Christians? Right? We, we don't need external laws Those can be helpful. We don't need external laws, though, to to make us do what's right. We have the Spirit inside of us that that compels us, that conforms us from the inside out. And that's what we're going to see today, that the the Spirit is the one who leads us as Christians to do what is right. We don't do what is right in order to be accepted by God, but because we are accepted by God and we have the Spirit in us, we do seek to do what is right. And so he's going to contrast a life that is led by the flesh and a life that is led by the Spirit. Let me read the passage that we'll look at this morning and then we'll examine it together. Chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 16. This is the Word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The true mark of a Christian is that that person is being led by the Holy Spirit. We want to look at two main points in this passage. First, what a Spirit-led life means. What does it mean to have a Spirit-led life? And then second, what does a Spirit-led life look like? What does it mean... And what does it look like? First, what does a Spirit-led life mean? Verses 16 through 18. Here we have this contrast that is set up between the Spirit and the flesh. 
And what that means is that we live in a war zone. That is, inside of our body there is a war zone. If you're a Christian, then you have both the spirit in you and the flesh. And we'll talk about what that is. And they're at war with each other. Last week we had saw we had seen that we were freed from the enslavement of the law, remember? But that doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want. We can't just go on and sin as we please. That still means we follow after Christ. As uh, It's not as if there there is no law at all. Rather, our life in Christ frees us to do what? It frees us to serve one another in love. And that's that's still an obligation. It's still a sense of enslavement, but it's much better sense of enslavement than this over here. That's what we saw last week. And so this week we're going to see that Paul continues on that idea. Notice verse 16. He says, but I say... So he's continuing what he had talked about before. In verse 13, at the end of the verse, he says, don't, uh, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So how do we do this? If we don't want to turn our freedom into an opportunity the flesh for the flesh, how do we do this? And here's the answer in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Here's the answer for us. How do we use our freedom in Christ in the right way? And the answer is that we walk by the Spirit. Now, when we say walk by the Spirit, what do we mean? It doesn't mean that we go out for a walk and we hope the Spirit walks alongside of us, right? Not right next to the Spirit. That's not really the idea. But rather, walk according to the Spirit is the idea. It's a lifestyle. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 said, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The idea is that it's not that you have to walk a certain way, right? But rather, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that's the idea here. Conduct yourself by the Spirit or according to the Spirit's desires. That's how we ought to live as Christians. We ought to walk according to the desires of the Spirit. And so this is given to us in the form of a command. Did you notice that in verse 16? Walk, you, walk by the Spirit. All of us, we need to be walking by the Spirit, conducting ourselves according to the Spirit. But if you know anything about the fruit that we're going to talk about, the fruit of the Spirit, you know that it's supernatural. And so for us to conduct ourselves according to the desires of the Spirit is really a supernatural thing. That is, it's something that God has to accomplish in us. And that's true. God does have to accomplish the walking by the Spirit. He does have to accomplish the fruit of the Spirit in us. But that doesn't mean that He excludes us from the whole process, right? If God wanted to, could He not just zap us into conformity to His desires? Right? From the time we get saved, He just zaps us and we now are these super high-level living type of Christians. God could do that, but He doesn't. He does it through means. He transforms us slowly through understanding His Word, through trials and challenges that come in life, through obedience to His words. And as we do, we, we become more and more conformed to the Spirit. We're walking by the Spirit, conducting ourselves according to the Spirit. So God uses means. What are those means? Turn back to chapter 3 of Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 5. How do we walk by the Spirit? 
I would suggest to you that the same way that we come to 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 know God, come to uh, salvation, is the same way that we walk by the Spirit. Paul had said this in, in chapter three, verse five. Look at this. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the implied answer is what? By hearing with faith. So if you came to Christ, he had said in verses three, uh, verses one through four, if you had come to Christ by hearing with faith, you didn't come by works of the law. You didn't do it by doing enough good things. You came by faith. You simply believed what God had said and you did it. If that's how you came to Christ, then this is how you continue in Christ. This is how you walk by the Spirit. By hearing with faith. You listen to God speak through His Word and then you believe it. That's it. That's all it is. So turn back to chapter 5. The Spirit-led life. It means that we have a war within us. Notice at the end of verse 16, it says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. Remember what the flesh represents. What does the flesh mean? The sinful desires that we have. Remember, you, you had Ishmael, the first son born to Abraham, was born according to the what? The flesh. Chapter 4, verse 23. What does that mean? That means that what? That, that uh, Abraham entered into a relationship, a physical relationship with Hagar? No. It means that Abraham and Sarah connived together, they schemed together to, to bring about this son apart from God's promise. God said, I will give you a son. I will bring you a son. Well, they're getting older. and I think Abraham was 75 at this time and he's thinking, I'm not going to have a son any longer. Certainly Sarah's too old to, to give birth at this point. She's around 65 years old. How could this possibly happen? So we'll make it happen. And so Sarah says, why don't you take my maid, Hagar, have a relationship with her and then we'll have a son. They, in fact, do have a son. But the Scriptures call that son born according to the flesh, not according to the promise like Isaac was 15 years later when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. And the point there is that they were living according to their sinful desires. They weren't hearing by faith. They weren't living by hearing by faith. They weren't, as we would say, walk by the Spirit. They're not doing that. They're not going according to the desires of God. So, according to verse 16, look at this verse with me. What will happen, here's the implication, what will happen if we don't walk by the Spirit? We will carry out the desires of the sinful nature inside of us. That's how important it is for us to be walking according to the Spirit's desires. If we don't do that, we will carry out our sinful desires. That's what the Scripture says. And that means that every single sin that we commit happens because we're not walking by the Spirit. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. How we walk by the Spirit. What it means. And that's exactly how we used to be all the time before we came to Christ. We used to always carry out the sinful desires of our flesh, didn't we? You say, wait a second. Before I came to Christ, 
I restrained myself from doing a lot of things. I didn't do all the bad things that I could do, right? And that may be true, but the only reason that is true is because of what is known as common grace. That is that God poured out upon you grace, not allowing you to do all the bad things that you wanted to do. And that was a measure of God's grace on you, protecting you from yourself and your own desire for your sin. And the opposite of that, uh, of, of, of walking by the Spirit really, is, is, is when God, instead of Him pouring out grace, the opposite of that is Him removing His grace and giving them over to the desires of their flesh, the desires of their sin. Romans chapter 1, right? They had these degrading passions, and so God says, fine, if you're not going to come to me, I'm going to give you over to your own sins and all the destruction and the, and the evil that comes about with it. And you're going to see that that is not what is satisfying in this life. And so what I'm telling you is that if you had any restraint before you came to Christ, that was a measure of God's grace on your life. But now that Christ has saved you, if Christ has saved you, the, the way that He keeps you from sin is through the Spirit. The Spirit who lives inside of you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's a new creation. Now this old nature is not completely eliminated, right? We don't have the sin nature completely go away so that all that is in us is the Spirit, but we have the Spirit warring inside of us with the flesh, right? And that war is going to be there for as long as we live. Until our bodies are fully glorified, that is, fully conformed to the image of Christ, which is in the next life, we will have this war inside of us, won't we? the war between the Holy Spirit and our sinful desires. So, our, our responsibility here, according to verse 16, is to conduct our lives in such a way that is in keeping with the desires of the Spirit. But the challenging thing is, is that there's a battle going on. Look at verses 17 and 18. We have this battle going on. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So we've got some bad news for you this morning. There will never be a time in your life as a Christian when you won't be battling against sin. There will never be a time in this life when you will stop battling sin. Because sin and its curse pervades this world outside of you. But even worse, sin and its curse pervades inside of you. It's in your heart, even as a Christian. And so there's this battle going on between your sinful desires and the Holy Spirit's desires for you. That's why verse 17 says that they are in opposition to one another. But aren't you thankful that the Spirit is warring inside of you? Aren't you thankful that He is warring inside of you? Because if He were not, notice what would happen at the end of verse 17, so that you may not do the things that you please. That is, the things that your sinful desires, your sinful desires want, your flesh wants, if the Spirit were not warring inside of you, then you would do the things that you please. 
But thanks be to God that the Spirit is warring in you if you're a Christian. And, and that means that you do not do the things that you please. It may feel like there's a battle going on and you're, you're wrestling, should I do this or shouldn't I? But that struggle should lead you to thanksgiving to Christ. Thank you, Christ, for, for bringing about the Spirit inside of me. Allowing me to, to uh, have this war going on so that I don't do all that I please. So what does a Spirit-led life mean? It means that the Spirit is battling inside of you to make you do what God wants you or to, to compel you, I should say. When I say make, I don't want to say make because this, I don't think God ever forces us. He does have control over all things, but He, does, he never twists our arm to do what's right. He compels us. He um, convinces us, persuades us perhaps, but, but there's not a, a forcing going on. But thanks be to God that, that there is this battle going on inside. So that's what the Spirit-led life means. Now we need to see what does it look like. What does it look like in a day-to-day life? First, we need to see what it does not look like in verses 19 through 21. What the Spirit-led life does not look like. And so Paul gives us a list of sins, just a sampling of what kinds of sins we will do if we're not led by the Spirit. So here they are, verse 19. Now the deeds or the works of the flesh are evident, which are, and he lists them out. You see, here's what kind of people we can put into this category. People who are trying to get to God on their own performance. They're using all those these external laws to try to, to be accepted before God. And what does their life turn out to be like? A life filled with these kinds of sins. A life that is uh, 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 practicing these types of sins. And so here's the point, the overall point that Paul's making. Just because you're under all these restrictions that you've placed upon yourself, maybe even biblical restrictions, the law of Moses, doesn't mean that you're going to be accepted before God and living rightly. Because all sorts of people live under the law and yet and yet they still practice these sins daily. Now this list that is that is um given is a sampling I said. So not doesn't mean that every single person who's an unbeliever practices all these things. But it's, it's a sampling, and it's sampling of both external actions, right? Like you see immorality, sorcery, strife, but, but also internal uh, thoughts or internal dispositions like impurity or jealousy or envy and so on. And so it seems to me, based on what one author, uh, puts, Lightfoot, puts it as um, categories, that, that Paul puts these in categories. And so the first category that I'm going to suggest here is verse 19, the sins of sensual passion. The sins of sensual passion. These are the types of sins that mark an unbeliever or a person who's not living by the Spirit, a person living by the flesh, allowing the flesh to win. First, immorality. This is all illicit sexual relations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. The same word that's used here. Every other sin a man commits, he does outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? So don't commit that sin. The best way to avoid the actual act of immorality 
is to stop feeding your mind with immoral things. I could stop here and give you lots of application, but, but you know exactly what you need to do. Stop feeding your mind with immoral things and you won't be practicing immorality. The second type of sin of sensual passion is impurity. It's a generic word for all kinds of uncleanness. It takes us back to the Old Testament when people would defile themselves. This is the idea that, that, that we defile ourselves with this, this impurity. It's used in Ephesians 5, verse 3. Immorality and impurity and greed must not be named among you. It should not even be named among you as if it's something that you participate in because it's not fitting for saints. It's not fitting for believers. Third type of sin of sensual passion is sensuality or as the King James says, lasciviousness. It's the idea that a person loves their sin so much they've gotten to the point where they don't care what God thinks about them or what other people think about them. They used to hide when they committed this sin, but now they do it in the open. Why? Because they don't care what other people think. They don't care what God thinks. That's sensuality. Practicing open sin, even if the whole world knows about it. Paul talks about this despicable living in Ephesians 4, verses 17-19, to where he says that the pagans are darkened in their understanding and they're excluded from the life of God so that they've been given over to their lasciviousness, their sensuality, their open practice of, of sin. They don't care what other people think. So sins of sensual passion. Next, the beginning of verse 20, we have sins of pagan practices. Sins uh, of pagan practices. You have idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is the, the worship of idols. Now, we don't, uh, in, in our day, usually have uh, you know carved out idols that we put on a man. Uh, a mantle, or put out in front of our house. But, but this is clearly rejected in Scripture. And we can't set up anything or, el- any, anything or anyone else in place of God as our object of worship. And only God is worthy of worship. If we put someone else in, the, in that place, we've basically denigrated God. We've moved God off of the throne where He belongs and said this other person or thing or object is more worthy of worship than God. That's idolatry. Sorcery or witchcraft or black magic, tempering with evil powers. These are the sins of pagan practices. And then you have, finally, the sins of... uh, uh, Actually, there's going to be one more after this. The third one is the sins of interpersonal relationships. Sins of interpersonal relationships, verses 20 and 21, you have six of them here. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. I think that's actually eight. That's terrible counting. All right, eight. So en- enmities first, hostility. Uh, James chapter four, verse four, four says, "Friendship with the world is hostility towards God." So the idea is that that we are at odds with God. That's what James is talking about. But here, Paul's just saying, generally, are we hostile towards other people with our interpersonal relationships? Do we have open hatred for someone else? We just spill out the venom because we just can't stand these people. Second one is strife here in verse 20. That there are these quarrels or fights. If we are involved in strife, particularly in spreading strife, the scriptures uh, are very much against that. Proverbs 6 16 to 19 says, Six things the Lord hate, the seven are an abomination. He lists off several, and one of them is 
uh, if I can find it here, it is uh, the one who spreads strife among his brothers. The one who spreads strife from this is something that God abhors, something that He hates. So we should not be this should not be something that 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 is uh, descriptive of us. Third one under interpersonal relationships is jealousy. That is looking with bitterness on someone else's goods. It reveals a heart of discontentment, of unsatisfaction. That that's not fair. How does that person get that? Right? I want that. I want that for myself. So that person is never going to be satisfied because you know what happens when they get that thing that they want? They want something else. I've been there. I'm sure you have as well. Jealousy. The the person that lives by the phrase, if only. If only I had X, then I could whatever. Jealousy. Then outbursts of anger. Or as the New International Version puts it, fits of rage. This is not to be something that describes a believer. That is, do you fly off the handle very easily? Do you fly off the handle a lot? At, at crazy drivers or crazy parents or crazy spouses or crazy governments? What, do you fly off the handle because you can't handle it? You, you don't have control over the whole situation, so you outburst with your anger. Next, disputes. The result of jealousy and strife will be disputes. And this is not something that should be a mark of our church or our lives as Christians. We don't come around saying, serve me. And when you don't serve me, I'm going to have a problem with that. No, we come around saying, like Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, God in human flesh, I didn't come to be served. Of all people, He deserves to be served. And He comes and says, I didn't come for that reason. But I came to serve others. If Jesus Christ can say that, how much more must we say the same thing? We should not be disputing with other people because they're not doing what we want. Next is dissensions or divisions. Paul says, if there's any people like this in your church, remove them. Turn away from them. Romans 16:17. Get them out of your midst. If there is dissent, people who cause dissension and strife and divisions, get them out. Faction, same sort of idea. And envying. Envying is different than jealousy. Jealousy is, I want what that other person has. Envying is, I don't want that person who has something good to have that good thing. I I don't want them to be happy. It reveals a, a very discontent heart to envy. And then there are the sins of excesses. Verses verse 21 at the end. Drunkenness and carousing. Drunkenness, of course, is the love for alcohol and a, a love for the rem- removal of inhibitions or control. It's the opposite of self-control, as we'll see here in, in the fruit of the Spirit. Dr. Bruce McAllister said the best way to avoid drunkenness is don't drink. Okay? The best way to avoid drunkenness is don't drink. Carousing, carousing he, Paul lists at the end of verse 21 there, this is wild partying or, or orgies, public orgies. And so, he gives this list, but this is not an exhaustive list because at the end, what does he say? And things like these. That is, our hearts, because we have all these sinful desires to please ourselves, we keep creating more and more things that we want to do that are against God. And so, yeah, he's listed all these several things in which 
the, the deeds of the flesh can be described as, but there are lots more that we could list. And here's the warning that Paul gives at the end of verse 21. Just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. You practice those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to have any part in eternal life if these things are practiced by you. Now, before you plunge yourself into deep despair thinking, I have done some of these things, right? I must not be able to receive the kingdom of God. But but we need to notice the the language that Paul uses. Notice again at the end of verse 21. Those who, he doesn't say, who commit these things one time. He says they practice such things. It's a great translation. They practice. This is the ongoing way that they live. It's not that anyone who's ever committed these things are going to hell. No. Those who continually practice these types of sin are being led by their fleshly desire and therefore they're not being led by the Spirit. It's clear that the Spirit is not in them. So that means that the battle, and this battle against sin, Christian, we must actively fight against these desires to sin in this way. Because they cannot characterize us. If they characterize us, then we will have shown, not that we lost our salvation, we had it and then we lost it. No, but that we never had it. If these characterize our lifestyle, it shows that we were never truly child, children of God. So, that's what the Spirit-led life does not look like. That's what a life looks like that is led by the flesh, the sinful desire. So what does the Spirit-led life look like? Paul gives us that answer in verses 22 uh, through 24. What the Spirit-led life looks like. The beauty of being in Christ is that we have been given the Holy Spirit. And He wages war on us so that we don't do the evil things that we want to do. So now Paul is going to turn our attention to the spiritual fruit that is produced in us by the Spirit. And if these are in you, I would say like Peter says, and are abounding, then you can be sure that the Spirit of God resides in you. Now, this is the basis for why God accepts you. Okay, I want you to understand that these are evidences. These are the results of your standing in Christ. But this isn't why God accepts you, because you have the fruit of the Spirit. But because God accepts you, this will happen. You will have the fruit of the Spirit in you. So, uh, before we look at the individual fruit, I just want you to see something. Notice verse 19 called the deeds, plural, of the flesh, meaning there are many kinds of deeds. Uh, unbelievers may commit all these and may commit some of these, but there are several different types of ways that the flesh shows its ugly head, we could say. But notice in verse 22, the fruit singular of the Spirit. The fruit singular. That is, the Spirit will produce all of these things in you as a Christian. He will produce all of them because He's at war with the flesh that lives inside of you. First, love. Love is listed first because there's nothing greater than love. 1 Corinthians 13, right? You could have all these things. You could prophesy, whatever. But if you don't have love, you're like a 
noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Joy, an attitude which transcends circumstances. It's not like happiness that comes and goes based on how well things are going. But joy, you can have joy when times are great. But, but haven't you experienced joy even in the difficult times, Christian? Haven't you experienced this attitude that says, you know, God is in control and, and I still love my God and my position before Him even though it feels like my world is crashing in on me? That's joy. Peace. As opposed, as opposed to being at enmity or at war with God, we have peace. A peace Paul, that, which Paul describes as that passes all understanding. We can't explain this to unbelievers, can we? Is a peace within us that is uh, strong even in the midst of storm. And then patience. Instead of outbursts of anger when we can't get our way, we respond with patience. Okay? Patience. We're, we're slow to anger. We're long-suffering like God does. God doesn't just lash out and say, boom! You're dead. No, He's slow to anger. He's slow to become anger, but He is abounding in mercy. That's the type of people we ought to be. Kindness. We treat people with care and love. We, we treat them with kindness. Goodness. We'll talk about this here in a couple of weeks when we get to uh, chapter 6. That we're, we're willing to do good to others. That we're, we're giving of ourselves to, so that other people can be benefited from our service. Faithfulness. We don't waffle back and forth based on the circumstances. You know, I, oh, I believe God today, but tomorrow, you know, if something difficult comes, I'm not going to believe Him. He must have gone away. No, faithfulness is, God, I'm going to stay committed to You even when life is up and down. I'm going to be faithful. Stay on course and trust God continually. Gentleness. Not volatile. Even in situations which would naturally call for a volatile attitude, Right? I mean, think of Paul and Corinth. I mean, these people were living in open sin and you just think that Paul would just come in there and just say, you, you terrible wretches. I'm done with all of you. But instead, he comes to them with gentleness. Are you described as a gentle person? Or are you harsh and rash? Self-control. This is the opposite of a drunk who has no control over his sense of reason, his inhibitions. A self-controlled person is a person who has restraint. Okay, and and these sorts of these other things that we've described really explain a person who is self-controlled. Paul finishes up the list by saying this: Against such things there is no law. Now you can say, well, the reason they put that there is because there's no laws against doing any of these good things, right? No one ever took someone to jail because they were loving. But, but, and that is true. That is true. There, there are no laws against these things. But that's not the point. The point is, based on the context, is that the law can't produce these things. That in the Old Testament, all these people were under the law, and what did it produce in them? Sin abounded. And they saw their need for a Savior even more, but, but it actually didn't produce what it was designed to produce, and that is love and joy, and peace. They were simply holding themselves under the rules, the rituals of the day, but it didn't produce in them what the Spirit of God produced in them. 
what only the Spirit could produce in them. And that is the fruit of the Spirit. See, we can't do these things when we trust in our own performance, when we work hard to obey all these rules and things. We do it when we trust God, when we walk by the Spirit, which means to walk by faith. Paul concludes with a summary in verse 24. He says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we have a Spirit-led life, it means that we have crucified the sinful desires. Jerry Bridges says it this way, the death of Christ secured for us not only freedom from the penalty of sin, but also delivers us from the dominion, the reign of sin in our lives. So, Spirit-led life is a life that is at war. It's a life that's at war. And if if we are in a spiritual battle as Christians, then we must not be discouraged when we struggle with sin. If you are a Christian, there is a war going on inside you, a spiritual battle. And so don't be discouraged when you struggle with sin. Okay, it would be like if we if we tend to plunge ourselves into deep despair because of our sin and never get out of that, we would be like a soldier in battle who is frustrated because they got bullets. Those are real bullets, right? And 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 they injured one of my other fellow soldiers. Yes, we we are saddened by that, but but we we get up and fight, right? That's the way it should be as a Christian. My point is don't be discouraged about your sin to the point where you're in complete despair or depression and we can't get out of it. But get back up and fight. Although there is a serious struggle, don't fear that the battle is lost. Look at verse 16 again. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That yes, we have hope in the life to come that God will completely eradicate sin from our lives, but we also have hope in this life that there will be a process of eradication going on in our lives. That is, a process of removal of our sins. Not to the place where we are completely without sin, but, but to the place where we are with less and less sin. Or we're sinning in, in lesser ways. Why? Because we have been crucified with Christ. And that means that our flesh is no longer our master. We no longer have to say yes to our flesh. We have the Spirit that lives in us and we can say yes to our spirit. So that means, Christian, that you must actively engage in the battle against sin. Notice the command in verse 16 again. I say to you, walk by the Spirit. Conduct yourself according to the flesh, or according to the, spirit, to the faith. This is what happens when the Spirit comes and resides inside of you. Titus chapter 2.11 He comes, He saves us, and He empowers us to say yes to godliness and no to worldly lusts. That's what happens in the life of every believer. Paul's not calling for us to, okay, you were under the law, you were restrained under all of these, so here's what I want you to do. Just let go and let God. No, he's not calling for that. 
No Jew in the battle for the land of Canaan let go and let God, right? They got up and actively walked around the city of Jericho seven times. They actually worked. They understood that the way that God accomplishes His purposes, yes, He can accomplish them on His own apart from us, but generally the way that He does it is through means, through His people working. And so that's why Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Ephesians 6 tells us the same thing in the Christian life. No, let go and let God there, but rather stand up and fight. Make sure that you're standing firm. Put on all the armor. Stand up. There's no passive. There's no passivity in the Christian life where we just kind of sit back and float and let God carry us on into glory. No, we're in the middle of a battle, and the battle's inside of us, and so we need to stand up and fight. We have the, the wily attacks of the devil that are coming our way. Are we ready? Are we ready for him? Those are the applications that I would give for the church. Because there's a battle going on inside of us, we must fight. But let me just leave you with a few applications for our church. Number one, fruit is not instantaneous, but it is inevitable. Fruit is inevitable. In the life of a true believer, fruit will come. And so these lists here, lists of what are called vices and virtues, are here to help for us as a church to help draw the line of distinction between who's in and who's out. That is, who are the true believers and who are the false professors? So, do you see a person who is characterized by sexual sin, by self-gratification, by animosity towards other people, by drunkenness and carousing? Do you see that type of person? Scripture says that type of person is controlled by their own sinful desires. And they are not to be a member of our church. Because our church, our local church, is supposed to represent what is in the universal church. That is who God lets in. And if our church is full of people who are carousing and envying and they're practicing immorality, then we've just thrown the Scriptures out the window and said, we don't care what you say, God. We'll do it our own way. So do you see a person like that? Then that person is controlled by the flesh. Do you see a person in contrast who is characterized by love and by goodness and kindness and peace and filled with acts of self-control and gentleness and faithfulness. Do you see that kind of person? That's an evidence of a person who has the Spirit of God residing in them. So these lists are here for our... Obviously, we can't tell, we can't look deep into the window of a person's soul and know everybody, whether you're in or out. But, but Jesus said what? By their what? We will know them. By their works or by their deeds, we will know them, right? We will know them by their deeds. So while fruit is not instantaneous, right after a person comes to Christ, I need to see all these things in you. No, but it will happen. So we should be watching for them. So that means that, that, um, that we have a method here given in the Scriptures for us to accept members into the fold and determine if they should stay. Okay, so we, we can see legitimate reasons why a person would come 
into our church. In the book of Acts, the pattern was if they made a, a credible profession of faith and they followed the Lord in believers' baptism and they didn't deny any major doctrines. Now, over time, we're going to be able to see that and, and see if they're, they're true to that. But initially, they didn't go through a huge process and say, I want to see you for a little while and see how you do. Now, they accepted them into the church, but then they had a mechanism whereby they could remove people who either espoused false doctrine or lived a fleshly type of life, practiced that way. Not that they did one bad thing on this list, no. But that's the practice, the characterization of their life. And so now we have a mechanism to remove those people from our church. Why? Because Christ is building His church and He's building a purified body. One who is serious about displaying these fruits of the Spirit. Let me finally give you this last word of exhortation. That is, the Christian life is often less than spectacular. The work of the Spirit inside of you is often mundane, non-exciting, non-experiential. That is, you don't get all these fuzzy feelings when the Spirit does a work inside of you. Because He's not going to manifest Himself like He did at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but rather He's going to do it through ordinary, moment-by-moment decisions. When you have a decision to make between living according to the Spirit and living according to the flesh, and you make the right choice, even if it's such a small thing, you see the Spirit working in you. And that's the Spirit shaping your godly desires, eradicating sin. Do you see that in yourself? Do you recognize that the sinful things that you used to love have now become appalling to you? That's not because you've grown older or because you've grown out of that stage of loving that sin. That's because the Spirit of God resides in you and He's working in you to change you. Pastor Harding made a really profound statement at the men's retreat last weekend. He said, Our lives are made up of a of a series of small choices. We often think we've got to stay away from the big things or we need to make the big decisions right. You know, college, spouse, you know, church, job, all these things. We've got to make sure we get all these decisions right. No, it's about the little things. Those things will come. We'll have to make those choices. But it's about saying yes to the Spirit here and here when no one sees. And here. These small areas. Do you want to be someone great for God's service? Well, the Holy Spirit has that same goal for you, to be great for God. And your responsibility is to be complicit with Him, to walk by the Spirit, to conduct yourself according to the faith. Faith, believing in what God says. And that means that you and I need to line up our desires with what God's Word tells us to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we have been given a daunting challenge in that in ourselves we cannot accomplish this. We feel weak and inadequate. We look at these vices and we think that's us. We, we, we practice some of these things. We are filled with strife and, and envy and sometimes immoral thoughts and, and sometimes we even desire to, to uh, remove self-control and restraints. But we're thankful that that is not the way that, that we live all the time not something that characterizes us. And that those 
desires that we do have are being removed by Your Spirit. We're thankful that You have empowered us to do what is right and to be filled with these fruit. Fruit that will characterize every believer eventually, inevitably. Help us to be patient with one another as these fruit are developed within us. Help us to be patient with You. We want to see sin eradicated now. And we want to see these fruit displayed now. But sometimes it just takes time. And looking into Your Word and responding to choices in the right way. Doing the little things right. Help us to do that, we pray. Give us the power to conduct ourselves according to the Spirit. We want to be pleasing to You, our Master. We want to give You praise for what You have done for us, giving us Jesus Christ as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. We could not come to You on our own. No one can come to You because we, we all are sinners. And so something has to be done about our sin. The only thing that we can bring to You in its place is faith in Jesus Christ who is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So we trust in Him fully. And we don't stop when we come to saving faith, but we continue on throughout the Christian life. Help us to encourage one another to do good works, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.